Well, good morning. Good to see everybody here. Praise the Lord for another Lord's Day where we can gather. Where we can gather. We're going to be in uh, Proverbs 22 today. Proverbs 22. As everybody gets settled in, just real quickly, by a show of hands, who has listened to a podcast before? Podcast. Oh, don't be bashful. Come on. I'm not asking you which podcast. Just have you listened to a podcast before? Okay. Let me ask you this. Who's listened to an eight track before? Okay. All right. Maybe I should have considered my audience a little better. Okay. Well, a podcast. No, I'm just kidding. When it comes to digital media, one of the interesting developments over the last, I don't know, the last recent years has been the rise of what can be called alpha male content. Are you familiar with this? Alpha male content. You see, the feminist movement, which arguably started in the 1960s, has emasculated men over the course of many years. And it seems now any uh, keen observer of culture can see the pendulum begin to swing back in the opposite direction. And now we have an influx of alpha male characters. I think it started with men like Jordan Peterson who offered uh, advice to young, ostracized young men at universities, helping them uh, navigate through their life. But fast forward and now the internet is flooded with these alpha male characters. And for a subscription, you can join their services where they'll teach you everything from fashion, how to dress, how to pick up girls, and of course, how to make a a bajillion dollars online using their technique, right? Well, having studied our proverb today, I can't help but wonder... How many downloads would a podcast get that had the wisest man in the world on it? Imagine if Solomon came into the studio and donned the headphones and took up the mic for just one episode. As viral as the episode as that would be, unfortunately, we will never hear Solomon's words coming through our headphones. But by God's grace, we have his words recorded for us in Holy Scripture this morning. So I invite you to join me in Proverbs chapter 22, where Solomon will offer men and women, both young and old, wisdom for the details of life. The theme of our passage today is that godly wisdom influences conduct. Godly wisdom influences conduct. But you know, the wisest man in the world would have a host of different topics that he could talk about. What would be your favorite subject to hear Solomon speak on? Would it be theology, politics, maybe marriage? Well, today in Proverbs 22, Solomon offers wisdom on two subjects, financial and moral conduct. I'd like to read Proverbs 22, and I'm gonna read it quickly for time's sake. Proverbs 22 says, a good name is to be more desired than great wealth. Favor is better than silver and gold. The rich and the poor have a common bond. The Lord is the maker of them all. The prudent sees the evil and hides himself, but the naive go on and are punished for it. The reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. Thorns and snares are in the way of the perverse. He who guards himself will be far from them. Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he's old, he'll not depart from it. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower becomes the lender's slave. He who sows iniquity will reap vanity, and the rod of his fury will perish. He who is generous will be blessed, for he gives some of his food to the poor. Drive out the scoffer, and contention will go out. Even strife and dishonor will cease. He who loves purity of heart and whose speech is gracious, the king is his friend. The eyes of the Lord preserve knowledge, and he overthrows the words of the treacherous man. The sluggard says, there's a lion outside, I'll be killed in the streets. 
and the mouth of an adulteress is a deep pit. He who is cursed of the Lord will fall into it. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, and the rod of discipline will remove, him, remove it far from him. He who oppresses the poor to make more for himself, or who gives to the rich, will only come to poverty. Incline your ear and hear the words of the wise. Apply your mind to my knowledge, for it will be pleasant if you keep them within you, that, you may, that they may be ready on your lips, so that your trust may be in the Lord. <clears throat> I have taught you today, even you. Have I not written to you excellent things of counsels and knowledge to make you know the certainty of the words of truth that you may correctly answer him who sent you? Do not rob the poor because he is poor or crush the afflicted at the gate for the Lord will plead their case and take the life of those who rob them. <clears throat> Do not associate with a man given to anger or go with a hot-tempered man or you will learn his ways and find a snare for yourself. Do not be among those who give pledges, among those who become guarantors for debts. If you have nothing with which to pay, why should he take your bed from under you? Do not move the ancient boundary which your fathers have set. Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Would you pray with me? Well, gracious Lord, we come to you grateful for yet another opportunity to gather in the name of your son Jesus and to study your word, your inspired, inerrant, infallible word. Father, give us ears to hear, help us to understand, but also to apply these words of wisdom to our life. And may it be for your glory we pray, amen. We return to our study in Proverbs, of course, picking up with Proverb 22. And to state the obvious, wisdom literature is a little bit different. Perhaps you've noticed this even in the way that you receive these messages. You know, expositional teaching builds its themes, its flow, and its arguments from the text. But one of the neatest things that I've seen in this series is the uh, the unity that can be found, the themes of these Proverbs. We've seen resolve, we've seen trust, obedience, and plans. But today's focus will be on conduct. And conduct is the way that we behave, or the way that we behave, especially in particular contexts. In Partners, we learned the TAN method of interpretation. Can anybody tell me what the TAN method of interpretation is? Can anybody tell me what TAN stands for? Yes. Yes, thank you. Then, always, now. When we interpret scripture, we always want to consider what did this mean then? What does this always mean? And of course, what does this mean now for us? And when it comes to Proverbs, the then is to be understood as a king instructing his son. And what do we call the son of a king? A prince, thank you. Because there are few things in the world that are more volatile than a privileged young man with great wealth at his disposal, Solomon first shares godly wisdom to influence financial conduct. So we start in verses one and two considering the limitations of wealth. Our first main point will be wise financial conduct and we also begin our first sub point which is wealth is not wisdom's greatest pursuit. Verse one, a good name is to be more desired than great wealth. Favor is better than silver and gold. Money is the root of all evil is a terrible translation of Paul's words. First Timothy, 610 says, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Money, riches, and wealth are not evil things. When it comes to money, where does the evil come into play? Based on 1 Timothy 610, where does the, the evil with money come into play? Thank you. The love 
of money. Anytime we find ourselves longing for something more than we long for God, that thing has become an idol. But wealth speaks of an accumulation of possessions, resources, and valuable assets acquired and maintained. We're not necessarily talking about ill-gotten gains or just money to blow. The idea is of responsibly accrued and stewarded wealth. Money and wealth are resources that God gives at his own pleasure. Solomon is going to use our love of money, our desire for wealth as a benchmark at which we will calibrate all of our other desires. The desire to responsibly gain and maintain wealth and steward this is a noble desire, but it's not wisdom's greatest desire. What does verse one say that wisdom's greatest desire should be? A good name, thank you, a good name. And favor is better than silver and gold. Here we see the Hebrew rhyme scheme at work. Perhaps you've heard Dusty explain that Hebrew literature doesn't so much rhyme sounds like we do in English as much as it rhymes ideas. Favor speaks of good standing with both God and man. And now it's awfully hard to uh, accrue wealth without silver and gold, without some money in the bank. However, our highest pursuit of good standing before God and man doesn't require that we have any financial resources at all. If we think about it, what are ways that we find favor with God and find favor with man? What are ways that we find favor with God? Integrity, thank you. Obedience, sure, repentance, faith. Also integrity with man, yeah, absolutely. But just because you don't need money in the bank to find favor with God doesn't mean that it won't cost you anything. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father and with his angels, and then will repay every man according to his deeds. Wealth is not wisdom's greatest pursuit, nor is wealth wisdom's greatest indicator. Verse two, wealth is not wisdom's greatest indicator. The rich and the poor have a common bond. The Lord is the maker of them all. Now remember, contextually, these words are not directed at Jerusalem's graduating class at the trade school. These words are directed at the prince, at a young man whose whole world involves wealth and riches. This is the water that he swims in. This is the air that he breathes every single day is around wealth and riches. But Solomon says if he's wise, he won't let that define him. The legacy standard, and I know some of y'all are packing that heat with you, the legacy standard says Yahweh is the maker of them all. From Solomon to the street sweeper, God has made all of them. Now what is the theological term that we use to talk about the equality of all men in the eyes of God? The imago Dei. We're all made in the image of God, in the likeness of God. No man is made lesser than any other. And since riches, money, and wealth are not wisdom's greatest indicators, we in the church don't use that as the metric to measure a man's wisdom. James 3 says, who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good conduct his words 
his works and the gentleness of wisdom. Excuse me. Quality clothing, durable vehicles that meets the need of your family, valuable assets, these are not inherently evil things. However, Solomon tells us they're also no indicator of wisdom. The Lord makes both the poor and the rich and he makes them equally capable of being wise. But continuing on to our next subpoint, even though the pursuit of wealth can be noble, we recognize that wealth has both dangers and rewards. Wealth has dangers and rewards. Verse three, the prudent sees the evil and hides himself, but the naive go on and are punished for it. Now it's true that being on guard can keep us from evil in a general sense, but syntactically, we're left with a question here in verse three. What evil? Well, contextually, the evil is the inherent risk associated with risk, I'm sorry, with riches and wealth. <clears throat> Again, we know money isn't evil. Paul told us that in 1 Timothy. But Solomon warns this young prince that when our fallen human nature endeavors to seek out wisdom, we will be wise to recognize that there is undoubtedly danger in our path. And Solomon calls it the evil. When it comes to fallen man pursuing wealth, what are some clearer titles than the evil that we could put on risks in our way of pursuing wealth? Or let me put it this way, in our pursuit of wealth as fallen men, what are the ditches that we could fall into as we pursue that noble task? <laughs> we want more of it, yeah. Discontentment, never satisfied. We trust in those riches. We find security in those things. Idolatry, idolatry, yes. I've wrote down a few, extortion, pride, self-sufficiency, exploitation, theft, idolatry, embezzlement, but the prudent sees the evil and hides himself. Now prudence typically speaks of forethought or concern for the future. And when it comes to wealth, finances, and money, wisdom tells us to pull our head out of the sand and recognize the ways that our flesh can accommodate evil desires and that if we are naive, we will certainly run into these things. Proverbs 13, 11 says, wealth obtained from empty effort dwindles and the one who gathers with his hand abounds. I mean, how do lottery winners lose their winnings so quickly? What happened to the prodigal son's inheritance? Financial foolishness results in punishment. The word actually speaks of a fine being placed on someone, a fine that has to be paid. But look at verse four, the, the reward of humility and the fear of the Lord, and those can be the same thing. The reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. Rewards. One commentator nailed it on the head. He said, the failure of the gullible to spot danger arises from their arrogant refusal to submit to God. The remedy is humility a religious term denoting the renunciation of human sufficiency. Whereas the naive are punished, the humble are rewarded. Now, if we allow the Bible to speak plainly, like we always want to do, using the analogy of faith, letting scripture interpret scripture, then there's three things to notice with this verse. First, we don't deny that if God so chooses, he can reward faithfulness with riches. I mean, you see it here in the text. And we remember that Solomon, the author of what it is that we're reading, when he asked for wisdom, the Lord granted it, but then also gave him riches and honor. But also, if you've been listening to our series through Proverbs, you know that Proverbs are not universal promises either. 
So secondly, we recognize Christ as the embodiment of all wisdom. Yet, foxes have holes, birds have nests, and the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. Thirdly, there's no doubt that these rewards are lined up in accordance with their value. Honor is to be more desired than riches and gold. That was verse one. And what good are riches and honor in hell? That's Matthew 16, 26. Moving on, we take a closer look at the sins that our desire for wealth can lure us into. Next, financial wisdom prohibits stealing and exploitation. Verses 22 and 23. Do not rob the poor because he is poor or crush the afflicted at the gate. For the Lord will plead their case and take the life of those who rob them. Here's one of the clearest proverbs in the whole book. I mean, riches as rewards takes some theological quality control checks and a little bit of biblical integrity. But, I mean, riches, rewards, again, it takes some theological quality control checks. But what confusion is there with financial wisdom that says, don't rob the poor? Don't crush the afflicted at the gate. The gate is, of course, where civil matters were addressed in this time. And Solomon's telling this young prince who undoubtedly would have had political connections, who would have been financially advantaged. Solomon says, son, don't use your rewards, don't use your blessings that God has given you to exploit the vulnerable. It's wicked to smash the vulnerable in litigation. We're reminded of James teaching us about true saving faith and how it makes no room for partiality. James says, listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? Unfortunately, it's commonly recognized that the rich and powerful have a way of, of, of bending the law at times or verdicts to their advantage. Not always, but commonly so. But Solomon has strong words warning those who seek to leverage the blessings of God to crush the heirs of the kingdom. For the Lord will plead their case and take the life of those who rob them. You see, our earthly court systems can be leveraged against society's most vulnerable people. But those who crush the afflicted and rob the poor are said to have a court date in heaven where Yahweh is the judge, the jury, the prosecutor, as well as the executioner. Financial wisdom also does not bribe. Verse 16b, he who gives to the rich will only come to poverty. Looking at verse 16, we see another discouragement against oppressing the poor, and hopefully that's setting in in your mind, but also the second half of that verse gives a warning against giving to the rich. It's just as equally discouraged. What, in, in the second half of verse 16 there, what does Solomon say the result of giving to the rich is? What's the outcome there? What does it only come to? Poverty. Thank you. Based on the common outcome, poverty, we can infer that the intent is also the same. Behind this gift is the one who chooses to oppress. This isn't a charitable donation. This is quid pro quo, or let me scratch your back because you scratched mine. I suspect not many of us in the room are heirs to the kingdom, attending international banquets, eating 
caviar and casually discussing how your empire can benefit mine. But this prohibition does affect our lives. You see, bribery is similar to flattery. What's the difference between flattery and a compliment? Intent, thank you. Intent, it's all about the intent. So let me ask you this. Why should we, as the people of God, not accept bribes? What's the problem with accepting a bribe? Yes, Ben. Yes, thank you, Ben. Yeah, I think Exodus 23.8 says just exactly what you're talking to. It says in Exodus 23.8, you shall not take a bribe for the bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of justice. Now, rounding out Solomon's teaching on financial conduct, well, we'll finally look at some broad financial principles, especially for wise youth. Financial wisdom principles, verses five and six. Thorns and snares are in the way of the perverse. He who guards himself will be far from them. Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he's old, he will not depart from it. I'd like to submit to you that this very familiar proverb about training up our children lies smack dab in the middle of a section on financial conduct. Verse five says, the way of the perverse. And verse six says, train a child in the way he should go. There's a tie-in here. Now thorns and snares are difficulties and traps. Thorns are inherent difficulties that we'll encounter and and snares are of course are traps set by others. And commentator Bruce Waltke says, the metaphor refers to temptations such as easy sex and easy money that tempt our youth. The morally degenerate tread a dangerous road infested with them. And we notice a progression. In verse three, the naive stumble into their financial troubles, missing out on riches, honor, and life. But here in verse five, it's not the naive, but the perverse who are being called out. Your translation may say crooked. The idea is not of just simple ignorance, but of intentional malice. He who guards himself from financed perversity will be far from these traps and troubles, but how do we guard ourselves? How do we guard ourselves from these traps and troubles? Well, one way is to train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he's old, he won't depart from it. No doubt there's many snares and and troubles in the way of the perverse and naive youth with lots of money in their pocket, but if we were to broaden out that application, which I think is certainly appropriate, what principles of financial wisdom should we train a child in order that he might veer away from thorns and snares? What are some financial principles that would be wise to teach our children? To give. Yes, we'll see that one in just a moment. Certainly, yes, he's the ultimate provider. Thank you, Craig, that's excellent. Yeah, I wrote, well, I didn't write, I'd be lying. Solomon wrote, we should be liberal with giving and be cautious with debt. So next is we should be cautious with debt. That's part of the education. Verse seven, the rich rules over the poor and the borrower becomes the lender's slave. You'll be hard pressed to make a biblical case against debt altogether. But repeatedly over and over and over again, God warns us about harmful interest. We see it in Exodus 22, Leviticus 25, Deuteronomy 23, even in Deuteronomy 15, God says that one of the ways that the nations will see the blessing of God on Israel 
is, will be their ability to lend to others. Rather than have to borrow from heathen nations, Israel will be so blessed that they will be a vessel able to lend to others. So you see, lending and borrowing are not strictly forbidden. However, we must be on guard not to position ourselves to become slaves of debt. Also not to bite off more than we can chew. When we're negotiating terms of a loan, either for ourselves or for others. Verse 26 and 27, do not be among those who give pledges, among those who become guarantors for debt. If you have nothing with which to pay, why should he take your bed from under you? Now in these times, it was much more common to sleep on the ground than it would be to sleep on the bed. So Solomon's saying, to be cautious with debt and becoming a surety for someone else or, or else you risk your, your assets, you risk your rewards. Also, rather than take on debt and risk having them, your things being taken away from you, it's better just to give your belongings away. Verse nine, be, be liberal with giving. He who is generous will be blessed for he gives some of his food to the poor. A literal translation there would be, the good eye is blessed. And it speaks of the good way which a man should conduct himself or a good way that he should behave. And now this is in contrast to verse eight where we see an oppressive, wrathful tyrant. Going back to Deuteronomy 15, just on the hills of where God's speaking of Israel lending to other nations, he also says his people should be generous in giving to those who owe them, who owe them debts. Every seven years, debts were to be forgiven and God warns his people, beware that there is no base thought in your heart saying the seventh year, the year of remission, it's near and your eye is hostile towards your poor brother and you give him nothing. Then he may cry to the Lord against you and it will be a sin in you. Some of the greatest opportunities that we will have to reflect the image of God amongst the people in our world will be when we are able to forgive them debts that they owe us and engage in this type of radical generosity. A concept which hopefully rings a bell for many of you in here. I suspect that to forgive someone's moral conduct will be far more common than opportunities than we'll have to forgive financial debts. And it's towards these moral concerns that Solomon now turns the conversation. Our second point is now on wise moral conduct. We're leaving the discussion on finance and coming to our moral conduct. And verse 12 will serve as an introduction and a transition. Verse 12. The eyes of the Lord preserve knowledge, but he overthrows the words of a treacherous man. A different translation could be the eyes of the Lord guard truth. The idea is that God sovereignly supports and upholds certain moral values while actively working against others. It's not enough for this young prince to simply donate to Jerusalem's soup kitchen and get in bed before the lights come on, even though that's important. This prince, you and I, must bring every aspect of our lives into humble submission to the Lord, not just our checkbooks. And much of what we're gonna see going forward will be in regards to what we say, our speech, or the words that we use. However, these words reveal whether our attitudes, our usage of time, our motivations, and even our social life are in alignment with that truth that God upholds. Wise conduct seeks social harmony, verse 10. Drive out the scoffer and contention will go out even strife and dishonor will cease. A scoffer, biblically, is someone who speaks or treats another person as if they are stupid. And 
It's kind of harsh, but that's what a scoffer is. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, ha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. It's fair to say that scoffing, insults, and belittling others are unbecoming of the Christian. But notice the point of this proverb is not so much not to engage in this unbecoming rhetoric as much as it is that wisdom doesn't allow this type of behavior to persist. It wouldn't be wrong, but notice here, we're not called to correct or even rebuke the scoffer. What course of action in verse 10 is Solomon saying to end strife? What do we do with a scoffer at times? We drive him out. We drive him out. Derek Kidner, a commentator, notes, disagreement and bad blood sometimes, keyword, sometimes arise not from the facts of a situation, but from a person with wrong attitudes who make mischief. That is to say, what an institution sometimes needs is not reform, but the expulsion of a member. Now, those are strong words. And removing someone from a community can be difficult and shouldn't be engaged in without careful consideration. For instance, take church discipline. What is the goal of church discipline? Restoration, thank you. Now often it will require some level of authority to engage in expelling someone from a community. So we pause to think, what are the areas that God has ordained in your life to have control over? Your family, other organizations, maybe you're an elder in this church. All of us need to reflect and be cognizant of the fact that wisdom seeks to maintain unity within a community and sometimes a difficult thing to do is to drive out the one who is scoffing. But wise conduct also includes social inclusion. Social inclusion. Now I've chosen this word inclusion and I know it has a lot of baggage today but I hope that you'll set that out of your mind. I don't have this perverted notion of inclusion in mind here. Verse 11, he who loves purity of heart and whose speech is gracious, the king is his friend. Once again, I want you to notice the words that are being used and the ability to reveal what's behind those words. Solomon tells this young prince, the way of going about building relationships is not to be haughty, it's not to talk down to people, not to treat people like they're stupid. Scoffing does not build social community. Rather, the way to build relationships is with purity of heart and gracious speech. I wonder, could it be that one of the reasons, there's many, but one of the reasons that the social fabric of the bonds of our community, our national community are ripping at the seams is because the princes and the kings of our land know nothing of purity of heart or graciousness in their speech. Instead, sometimes it feels like how much vile and wrath can we put in 280 characters or less as opposed to having pure hearts and gracious speech. Wise conduct may need at times to drive out the scoffer, but it always needs to draw in those who differ with us with pure hearts and gracious speech. Now continuing to press on forward as we move, next we see three things that wise conduct will seek to avoid. Wise conduct avoids these things. Verse 13, the sluggard says, there's a lion outside and I'm gonna be killed in the streets. Wise conduct avoids laziness as well as excuses. Now we know biblically that lions were not altogether uncommon. We read of both Samson and David killing lions 
in the countryside, but lions in the streets, <laughs> I can't read that and not think of some of the wild excuses I get at work for why guys are late. I mean, but church, truthfully, we're naive to think that we might be immune from this temptation of laziness and excuse making. Prayer, evangelism, family devotions, hospitality, mm, TV, personal time, or mine, a quick nap. If we're honest, this slugger resides in all of us. And the sluggard seeks to use his words to excuse his need to go out, but the adulterous woman uses her words to lure us in. Next, wise conduct avoids temptations. Verse 14, the mouth of an adulteress is a deep pit, and he who is cursed of the Lord will fall into it. Wise conduct avoids temptations. Numerous surveys show that one of the most common nightmares that people have is the dream where you're just falling. You're just falling, you're ever descending, but you're never landing, you're never dying, you're just falling. And for years I had a dream like this. I used to dream that I was falling off the cliffs at Possum Kingdom Lake and I would just never hit the water and I'd never die, I'd just be falling falling and falling. But Solomon says this nightmare becomes a reality for those who give in to the temptations of the adulterous woman. Proverbs 5 say, the lips of an adulteress drip honey and smoother than oil is her speech. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death her steps take hold of Sheol. Earlier, Solomon warns this young man about the connection between wealth and sexual deviancy. Here the focus is more on the lure of sexual appetite itself. Speaking of the woman's mouth, evoking the mind's attraction to physical intimacy. Solomon says, it's a trap. It's a deep, deep pit, son. Go around. Because Solomon knows. And God forbid this nightmare become a reality for you. So brothers, if this temptation finds you, bringing you closer and closer to the pit, I encourage you to clear your calendars Thursday mornings. And join us as we study passions of the heart because there's power and accountability and good influences just like there's power in bad influences which is where we turn next verses 24 and 25 wise conduct avoids bad influences really truth be told what's there to add here I mean we become like those who were around and bad morals, I'm sorry, bad company ruins good morals. And like a tattered and wounded bomb dog sniffing out mines in the battlefield, Solomon leads us, clearing the path, pointing out snare after snare after snare, showing us the way of wise moral conduct, saying don't go that way, Stay away from there. Son, go around that one. He knows the besetting sins of us all, especially young men like who he is addressing here. And for that reason, Solomon says, wise conduct educates. Wise conduct educates its youth. Foolishness. Verse 15, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child and the rod of discipline will remove it far from him. Naivety, laziness, sexual perversion, 
bad tempers. He just takes all of these things and bundles them up and he calls them foolishness. Most of you know that Karen and I have children. Not half as many as some of you guys have, but we do have a few. We have a few, we're working on it. And y'all guys know this, but as they get older, as your children get older, the changes happen so quickly. It just seems like month after month after month is another change and another change. And you know, one of the hardest changes, one of the hardest changes is realizing the sinful hearts that they have. I mean, doctrinally, I know this. I know that Adam is their father. It's clear that my children are little sinners. But there's something about seeing their little minds begin to scheme. Looking into their eyes and seeing the corrupted wheels start to turn as they formulate their responses. You see their conscience and their corruption battling in an instant, in an instant, hatred can can overcome our children and vengeance is brought forth on their brother or their sister. And where does Solomon say the issue with their moral conduct lies? If we look at our verse, looking at verse 15, where does Solomon say the issue with their moral conduct lies? In the heart. It lies in the heart. And what is the means of removing this foolishness that's bound up in our children's heart? The rod, the rod of discipline. You see the rod of fury mentioned earlier, it's no good for discipline. In verse eight, Solomon says, this rod, the rod of fury only sows iniquity and that rod will one day perish. So let's take a moment and compare, what is the difference in disciplining our children with the rod of fury versus disciplining with the rod of discipline? What are some of the ways that we can discipline wisely? Control. Control. Restoration. Seeking restoration. Thanks, David. I'm sorry, one more time. Love built in with that discipline. Yeah, I I wrote patience, not disciplining and anger, equal scales and balances for all of the children, providing known boundaries, offering correction, and grounding all of our discipline, all of our discipline in the gospel of peace. The gospel that says, son, you've sinned and there's serious consequences for sin. But Jesus Christ came and lived the life that you're supposed to live and he died the death that you should die for your sin in order to secure forgiveness and cleansing for our sins, for our disobedience. And we share that gospel with them over and over and over as we administer the rod of discipline, recognizing ultimately that the rod of discipline is altogether insufficient for changing our children's hearts. Only the gospel can change our children's hearts. We shouldn't be ashamed of offering the gospel with our discipline because Romans 1.16, it is the power of God for salvation. It's the same gospel that you and I continue to marvel in as we recognize the foolishness that abounds within us. Solomon tells us to train our children in wise financial conduct as well as to discipline them to bring about wise moral conduct. And when we do that, what will we see? We see the two come together. Verse 29, do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Parents, we have to commit to instilling this godly wisdom into our children. Fathers, we need to train our boys in the ways that they should be going 
We need to instruct them, discipline them, and discipline them such that the end product results in a man. Lord, help us to raise godly men who forsake the easy sex and the easy money and who humbly submit all of their life to the Lord. Skilled men, disciplined men, wise men, godly men. Church, as Drew taught us, let us commit our plans to the Lord that he may establish them in this way. And if we do, we will have men fit for the type of woman that Chris will show us next week in Proverbs 31. So as we close, what are the takeaways? What are the takeaways? Well, we recognize and trust that only by the power of God's spirit working inside of us will this godly wisdom influence our conduct. We have no strength within ourselves. The Proverbs are excellent, they're great tools, but it requires the spirit of God to apply them in our lives. So are you lacking wisdom financially? Is, the, is your highest goal financial status? Do thorns and snares keep you enslaved in debt? Are you lacking moral wisdom? Do prowling lions keep you from your important responsibilities? Do lips that drip honey draw you closer and closer and closer to the edge of a pit? Are you the hot-tempered man who negatively influences others? If so, then hear the words in verses 17 through 19. Incline your ear and hear the words of the wise. Apply your mind to my knowledge, for it will be pleasant if you keep them within you, that they may be ready on your lips so that your trust may be in the Lord. Let's pray. Well, Father, we again thank you for your inspired word, for these proverbs, for the lessons that Solomon was teaching his son, but that you have, have gathered for our benefit as well. Lord, help us to, to seek wisdom, to apply this knowledge, to have these proverbs ready on our lips when temptation comes. Let them be the little short swords that we use to fight off the temptation to sin against you. Lord, we ask that you'd bless the remainder of our time today, and we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.